The death stares that we got going in were far more intense going out. If you have money and lots of lawyers and lots of popularity, justice is different for you. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today via electronics is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. And Jim, we should say right off the top, since we've been in the studio together for a few weeks, where the sound is fantastic, that we are both remotely located and just making do because we wanted to bring our listeners an episode for Christmas week. That's right. And it's the holiday season. So we're hoping that everybody is out there is safe and healthy and happy. And, you know, if not, we hope you're working towards it. That's right. So today, Francie, I'd like to talk to you about one of your cases. Do you have one in mind? I do, Jim. I love it when you interview me. I'm always slightly anxious about it. Like, do I know everything yet? Am I going to be able to ask you questions that you're not prepared for? That's what you want to know. (laughs) That's right. I always worry about that. But I am ready. I have a case. Okay. Well, where were you in your career when this case came to you? Well, I was what you might call a seasoned prosecutor. I was an assistant U.S. attorney, so I was a federal prosecutor. I'd been a state prosecutor for six years and a federal prosecutor for about five when this case came in back in 2007. Wow, 2007. Hmm. I was getting ready to retire at that time, as I recall. But anyway, what were you doing in your life at that moment? Well, I had what's what was then known as the duty phone. So every prosecutor across the world, probably, and police officer for that matter, an agent, is well aware of the dreaded duty week. And at the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Atlanta, we had to be on duty in each section for a week at a time. And what that meant was you would take home the office telephone and It lasted an entire week, so over the evening hours, the early morning hours, and the weekend, starting Monday night and ending Monday morning, you had the duty phone. And so agents from across the agencies here in the area 
all had that duty phone number. And if they made an arrest or needed a search warrant or needed a complaint done, they would call the duty phone and get whichever AUSA was on duty. And in October of 2007, it was my duty week. Wow. And what were you doing on October of 2007 when this case came in? Well, it was a Saturday. And here in Atlanta, preparations were being made for the BET Awards that Saturday night. Uh, There were a lot of local Atlanta rappers and musicians, actors and actresses who were up for many awards. The town was sort of buzzing and electric. Everyone was in town. It was getting a huge amount of coverage. It's all anybody was talking about was the BET Awards. And I, uh, at about, I don't know, maybe two or three o'clock in the afternoon, a few hours before the awards, I was just sitting at home with my husband when I got a call. And your cats? And my cats. That's Let's right. not forget about the cats. Okay? I because... can never forget about the cats, Tim, of course. Okay. In fact, recently I've been called, I think it was by your brother, Tim Clementi, a crazy cat lady, which is, I think, mean. But there it is. That's the Clementis. Hmm. <laughs> I, I think he's confused. I think he should call you the crazy cat woman because <laughs> you're a crime fighter, right? Oh, yeah. So much better. <laughs> Wait, is the Catwoman a good person or a bad person? I think a bad person. <laughs> well, Catwoman is one of Batman's biggest rivals, know, in fact, Jim. I know. That. <laughs> and we've had so many famous ones in our career, right, in our lives. That's right. Absolutely right. So there I sat on a Saturday afternoon at home when the dreaded duty phone rang. And for all of those Christmas week, especially here, and the holiday week, New Year's next week, who are on duty around this country, I just want to say how grateful I am for you keeping us safe. Police officers, first responders, prosecutors, agents, and uh, everyone else, nurses and doctors who are on duty over the holidays while the rest of us, um, you know, indulge, overindulge, and generally go a little bit crazy. Yeah, well... I appreciate that, too. I mean, everybody who's on duty and everybody who's on call has to be ready to be on duty at any given moment. So it can take away from, you know, family time. And that's a sacrifice that we should really uh, appreciate them for. Well, especially when just uh, just less than 48 hours ago, a police officer in California was shot and killed During a traffic stop, Jim, you and I have talked about this so many times where uh, it's the most dangerous time for police officers is a traffic stop. And as of when we're recording this anyway, uh, the killer of this police officer has not yet been caught. Yeah. Well, do you know what the circumstances were? I don't. I just was reading an article that it was just a police officer doing a traffic stop. He was a young uh, Indian-American police officer known to be, quote, living the American dream. He had a wife and an infant son. There's been photographs posted on the Internet. It's just heartbreaking to see him with his wife and child and to know now that child is going to grow up fatherless because his brave dad was serving and protecting the public and was killed in a traffic stop. So senseless. So I've posted on Twitter, uh, and actually so has Tim uh, Clementi, we've posted on Twitter the article which contains photographs of this suspect, and I hope people will go and and look at it, and if they know him or know where he might be or if they see him, please call 911 immediately. But back to lighter topics. 
So I was on duty in October, uh, a Saturday in October of 2007. The, the BET Awards were getting ready to happen here in my wonderful city of Atlanta. And my duty phone rang. And it was, what I have to say is, my favorite ATF agent, Agent Michael Rowland. Well, it's nice that you have a favorite. That's so sweet. <laughs> I do. And Michael Rowland is such a squared away guy. He was a previous Secret Service agent prior to that and a, and a local police officer, a dedicated public servant, worked very hard, was really instinctive, a great detective all around. Well, that's great. Um, it's great to hear. They certainly have a difficult job. I think you should explain to the audience, Francie, what the ATF stands for. And they may have added a few letters, haven't they? That's right. They have added them. It's the uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives, actually, is the ATF. And they are part of the Department of Justice. And they were started many, many years ago. They were originally part of the Department of Treasury, where they were sort of co-agencies with the Secret Service. And they were founded to fight against moonshiners, really, was the original intent of the agency. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of times they are also referred to as the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and Explosives. So you may see ATF, you may see ATFE, you may see BATFE, but we, since we've known them for a very long time, just call them good old ATF. That's right. So Agent Michael Rowland of the ATF calls me uh, that Saturday afternoon and he says, Francie, we've arrested T.I. T.I. Now, that's something. That, <laughs> it uh, was. It, it meant nothing to me, Jim. I was like, what is that? Is that a what does that even mean? I didn't, I didn't even literally know what that meant. That was how out of the loop I was. And what's what's crazy about that is you wouldn't have been aware then that there's a connection to the day. So let's hear. What did you ask him? Well, so I said, what is a T.I., Michael? (laughs) And he said, you know, the rapper, the world famous rapper, T.I. Wow. I admit I was not all that up on my rappers, although once he said rapper T.I., then I got the context of it because I had been reading some articles about the BET Awards, and he was up for several awards at BET, and he was supposed to perform live there with Kanye West and other uh, musicians to celebrate that music. Well, uh, I imagine that he had, if he had just been arrested by the ATF, then he might not be uh, making his performance that evening. Oh, Jim, you might be right about that. And in fact, I had to ask Michael, why have you arrested rapper T.I.? Uh, what's the case? What's going on? And what do you need from me? And so it was one of those occasions where I had to go into the office. And what followed was some of the most remarkable experiences of my entire life as a prosecutor. Well. Let's hear about it. What happened first? Well, first, uh, I asked Roland for some basic details as I threw on some decent looking clothes, because of course it's a Saturday in October and I'm sure I was in jeans and a sweatshirt. So I threw on some a little bit more decent clothes because I might have to talk to a judge and federal judges are notorious sticklers for proper decorum. 
So I throw on some good, some a little bit better clothes, and I'm talking to Roland as I'm going into the office. And he but said, first, you're going to have to explain to our audience what judges mean by proper decorum, because that is a law enforcement term. It is. Proper decorum means generally respect for the courtroom, respect for the court process, and above all, respect for the judge. Federal judges are um, sticklers in a lot of respects, I guess you could probably call it. They, you know, they, they have a very strong sense of tradition and court values. And what that means is there's no messing around. I mean, in an emergency, if I'd walked in there with a sweatshirt, would I have gotten tossed out? Of course not. But the judge, if they had to be called in themselves on duty also over the weekend, they would be dressed properly. And so while I didn't have to have on a suit, proper decorum means having clothes on that show respect for the judicial process. Okay, great. So you go into the office and... What do you do when you get there? When I get to the office, I am still on the phone with the agent who's not in the office yet because he is still processing the case. He is processing TI. And the first thing they need from me, well, two things, really. They need a complaint. That is really no more than just basically an arrest warrant that a judge will sign because they've already taken TI into custody. And we have to now cover it with paper, as we used to call it. And what that means is the federal agents are allowed to make an arrest if they have probable cause, but very quickly, the rules are uh, within a certain number of hours, a judge has to make a finding that the agents were right, that there is probable cause to believe that the person they placed in custody has committed a federal crime. Right. Now, let's back up a little bit because you said that the agents were processing TI. What that means is that the agents would take them into their office. They would put them probably in a interview or interrogation room. They'd attempt to interrogate him since he's in custody. That would be done, of course, after Miranda warnings were issued and agreed to. And then they would also fingerprint and photograph him. They'd make a full record, and chances are that they would make a major case print card, which means not just the regular fingerprints, but palm prints and the whole hand prints. Because a lot of times when you have a crime scene or evidence from a crime scene, they'll find fingerprints that aren't from the tips of your fingers. So the FBI started a practice in the federal government of doing major case prints, which are prints from all areas of both hands and palms. Yeah, that's right. And so that's what they were doing. They were printing him, photographing him, and putting him in an interview. And so an interview room. And so I, at the same time, I'm in the office. I'm ready to go at my computer. I'm ready to type out a complaint, but I've got to have quite a bit of information from the agent before I can write up this complaint because it is effectively the probable cause statement of the case. And so now is when I learn the details of why rapper TI has been arrested on the day of the BET Awards. Okay. Well, I'm really anxious to find out, but I have some kind of clue because the ATF arrested him. So it could be something to do with alcohol could be something to do with firearms. It could be something to do with tobacco. And it could be something to do with explosives. Oh, Jim, you're so smart. It's almost like you're a trained agent. 
No, <laughs> I don't know about that, Francie. But let's go forward. You're absolutely right. It was, in fact, about firearms. And it, the amazing things I learned in this case brought me into a, a whole world that I really was only tangentially aware of. And everyone in the audience may not know this, but back in 2007, uh, that was the time when there were, well, I don't know how else you put it, besides turf wars or gang wars between rappers. Rappers had been shot and killed. There was lots of uh, gunfire going on in and around rap music and involving rap stars. And Mm. so on the day of the BET Awards, unbeknownst to me, the ATF was running a confidential informant. They had made an arrest earlier in the week of a confidential informant who had bought machine guns and silencers from an undercover ATF agent. Now, machine guns and silencers are, people think they're completely illegal. It's not exactly true. It's not illegal to possess machine guns and silencers so long as you have complied with federal law, which, by the way, makes it nearly impossible. But with a certain amount of background checking and a very heavy regime of taxation, you can own a machine gun and even a silencer, but most people do not. And for a certain class of people, machine guns, silencers, and any other kind of firearm is completely illegal to possess. Jim, do you know what class of people that is? Uh, How about felons? That's right. Convicted felons. People who've been convicted of felonies or domestic violence misdemeanors are prohibited by federal law from possessing firearms. And so I discovered very quickly, rapper T.I., whose real name is Clifford Harris. Mr. Harris was convicted several years prior to 2007 of drug trafficking. So possession with intent to distribute cocaine in my own home county of Cobb County, that's Marietta, Georgia. He was convicted. He was only sentenced to probation, but he was convicted of possessing with intent to distribute cocaine. And so he was a convicted felon. All right. Well, that means he's not allowed to have any firearms. That's right. No firearms, not even bullets. You cannot even have ammunition if you're a convicted felon, much less machine guns and silencers. And so the Wednesday before the BET Awards, the ATF arrested a man who was buying illegally silencers and machine guns from an undercover ATF agent. That man said that he was buying them for rapper T.I. So the agents very quickly put together a sting operation whereby they would watch this bodyguard deliver these machine guns and silencers to TI on the day of the BET Awards. And so they wired up this informant. They put video camera in a button on his shirt and had sound wired. Uh, They recorded a phone call between the bodyguard and TI arranging for the bodyguard to pick up $12,000 in cash to buy these machine guns and silencers and to deliver them to TI in the parking lot of a Publix at about two or three o'clock on the afternoon of the BET Awards. Wow. That's kind of dangerous. It is. I mean, you just, you know, it's, it's hard to understand. Of course, as law enforcement, it's impossible to understand. But even as just a regular citizen, you You have to wonder to yourself, why on earth does a rapper or anybody 
need on the day of a major award ceremony to buy silenced machine guns. Well, I have to ask you a question first. Is this rivalry that was going on at that point between rappers, is it an East Coast, West Coast thing like it was with Biggie and Tupac and all that? Oh, Jim, you're asking me for details. I have. I never got quite that far in to the rivalry, but those shootings and that rivalry was certainly in the background. And in fact, T.I. had been shot at in the past in California, I think it was, driving down a highway and had a friend who had been in the car with him shot and killed. Yeah, well, it sounds to me like he was preparing for something that could go down because I imagine at the BET Awards, rappers from all over the country, and those are friends and foes, would all be put together in the same arena because they're all probably going to be attending the awards and maybe even receiving awards themselves. That's right. There was a lot of rivalry going on. And so I'm sure that is how he felt. However, he's a convicted felon and it's completely illegal for him to possess guns of any kind, much less buy machine guns and silencers, which are even more highly regulated and tightly controlled. Have y'all heard of Care Of? It's a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. They have this really fun online quiz that asks you about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices. It only takes five minutes to find out what vitamins and supplements you specifically need. Did you know that 90% of people fall short of the FDA-recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient? Take care of's quiz and get the vitamins you need to get back on track and reach your health goals. Your vitamins are delivered right to your door in a personalized, easy-to-remember daily pack, perfect for travel or busy on-the-go lifestyles. I'm always really concerned, especially as much as I travel, as much as I fly in those really dry airplane environments, and so the online quiz for me really helped me to formulate the perfect pack for better skin care. If you want better skin care or health care in general or to reach your personal health goals or just to feel better, you can get 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins by going to takecareof.com and entering the promo code BESTCASE. That's for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. Visit takecareof.com and enter the promo code BESTCASE. So there I sit in my office on that Saturday. I'm getting these details from Agent Roland. And I am typing up a complaint. And of course, by now, I've realized that this is going to become highly public. And the first thing that any good prosecutor, agent, or detective does when they figure out that they've got a case that is going to be highly public is they kick it right up the chain of command because you have to immediately alert the presidentially appointed United States attorney if you are about to have a case that's going to break in the news. Mm -hmm. And so I had to not only sit in my office on a Saturday and type up a complaint and wait for the agents to arrive and process the whole case, I had to call my boss, United States Attorney Dave Namius. And I called the first assistant United States Attorney, who at the time was a woman named Sally Yates, who everyone may remember was at one point here the acting Attorney General of the United States. Of right. course, at the time, I had no idea she would 
get such a lofty position, but I had to alert both of them that I had a case that was going to break in the news very soon. Okay. And what did they say when you told them? Well, they, uh, more than I, they knew who T.I. was immediately. I didn't even need to tell them. And so my boss, the U.S. attorney, uh, came into the office to, quote, help me. What that meant really, though, was he stood over my shoulder as I was typing up paperwork, which anyone knows when your boss stands over your shoulder when you're typing up paperwork, things are different than normal. Yeah, usually a little more scrutiny, a little more stress. That's right. A lot more stress for sure. So here's the full story by now I have from the agent. So they've got the bodyguard who's wired up and ready to record uh, this transaction between him and T.I. where he's delivering the guns on that day. So the bodyguard arrives, the agents are already in the parking lot of that Publix grocery store here in Midtown Atlanta, and they are surveilling it. T.I. arrives in a car, he's driving, The bodyguard gets into the car and delivers the machine guns and silencers to T.I., at which point the ATF swoops in and without incident arrests T.I. So he comes alone. He doesn't come with the whole crew. So there's not any question that he is actually the person that is purchasing and possessing these illegal firearms. That's right. He is all by himself. And not only that, But the first thing the agents do after they pat him down to make sure that he doesn't have any weapons is search his car to make sure that there are no weapons within his reach that he could break away and get. And they find, in fact, there is a weapon. There are multiple weapons in that car, including a loaded handgun tucked right in between the driver's seat where he was sitting and the center console, ready for him to grab and use in a second. Mm. And that's why traffic stops are the most dangerous for law enforcement, because it's very easy to secrete a weapon that is very accessible and quickly accessible that can be used to shoot anybody. That could be somebody in the public or somebody like a police officer who's just stopped you and you want to make sure that you don't get arrested. So unfortunately, This is what happens many times. Officers get shot, wounded, or killed because there are felons running around this country driving cars with weapons in them, and those weapons are illegal, and they know they'll go to jail if they get caught with them. That's right, and that's why that desperate situation sometimes arises and why police officers you know, have adrenaline pumping and are so anxious themselves when they conduct a traffic stop because they're so aware of cases where just like the one that just happened in California happen all the time. Yeah. Well, what happened when they arrested T.I.? So they arrested him without incident and take him into custody and take him to their offices in order to interrogate him. He doesn't really say anything. He's not making statements. He asks for a lawyer. T.I. is an experienced criminal defendant. This wasn't the first or even the second time that he'd been arrested. So he didn't say anything to the agents when they arrested him. And that's when they called me and I got involved. So we're typing up the paperwork at the U.S. Attorney's Office. We're alerting the judge, the magistrate judge, federal magistrate judge who's on duty that weekend that they're going to need to sign some paperwork. And the agents tell me that they also need a search warrant for T.I.'s residence for further evidence to see because the bodyguard has told them that T.I. possesses many, many more guns Mm. in his residence here in Atlanta. Wow. So did they get the search warrant? 
Yes. Uh, I typed up the search warrant. I typed up the complaint. I put all the probable cause allegations in it. We got a federal magistrate judge to sign it. And the ATF agents executed a search warrant on his home. And they found it was either seven or nine more guns uh, in his house, in a safe, in his bedroom closet. And let me just ask you this, because I'm always curious about why people, and especially felons, have to accumulate weapons. Did he have any weapons at all, like the ones he was trying to buy? No, he had no other machine guns or silencers. He had all other handguns. So he was upgrading. That's right. He was upgrading so that he was strapped and ready if there's some kind of wild gun battle at the BET Awards. Or so he could start one, right? I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Well, that's right. And to us, uh, to me, he was particularly dangerous. He was a convicted felon. He was loaded with guns everywhere in his house, in his car. Now he's buying machine guns that, as everybody knows, can kill many, many people very, very quickly. And they're silenced. That's what's scary. That's right. Well, that's someone who's thinking about, okay, I might need to kill many people very quickly and get away with it so no one knows where I'm shooting from. I mean, it seemed to me to be very calculating and frightening. I mean, I, th- I thought he was a very dangerous person. Well, it sounds like it from his behavior. Definitely. So he's under arrest. He's not really making any statements. We searched his house. Uh, there are other guns found there in his closet in a safe that uh, only he had the combination to, or it may have even been a fingerprint, I think. I can't quite remember. So we have a lot of evidence. There are other things inside the safe that are very personal to TI that uh, include videos and photographs of him that proved to us that the safe was his and everything inside it was his. So we have him dead to rights. There's no question about his guilt. And so we have to wait till Monday morning for his first appearance before a magistrate judge. And that is really when things got crazy. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. So this was Saturday that this started. When did they actually search the home? They searched the home the same day, that that evening, Saturday evening, they executed that search warrant and searched his house and found all these other guns. You were working very hard for a very long time on Saturday. Oh, yes. It was very late. I remember very distinctly because the federal building had these rules where on the weekends you didn't have overhead lights unless you requested them from the General Services Administration, from GSA. You had to request them by Friday at 5 in order to have lights on the weekend. (laughs) And nobody – it's weird because normally – there'd be somebody preparing for trials that weekend. And so there'd be lights, but for some mysterious reason, nobody was preparing for trial over that weekend. And so we didn't have lights. I was very fortunate to have a desk lamp and a standing lamp in my office that I had bought myself because the federal government doesn't buy those things that I bought myself and brought in the office. Cause I very distinctly remember looking at my computer screen, which was very dim, the U S attorney standing over my shoulder and he's trying to see as I'm typing, and really, it's mostly the light of the computer that is that is keeping us able to see anything. Ah, uh, the wonderful perks of working for the U.S. government. Yes, and uh, you know, and I know right now, as we're speaking, at least a big chunk of the U.S. government is shut down right now. And unfortunately, many of our former colleagues are, you know, on furlough. And that's kind of sad. 
That is unfortunate. But then some of them also are considered essential. Many, I think every FBI agent is considered essential. And the prosecutor's offices usually sort of, quote, share that essential. And so they rotate, they cycle in and out during a shutdown. Uh, We had to do, I had to do that when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And so there are definitely some that are working to continue to protect the public. And so, yeah, it was a very surreal situation because there were a lot of darkened hallways in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And so there I am with my boss, the U.S. Attorney, creeping around these darkened hallways as we go to and from the magistrate's office, trying not to bump into things uh, in the dark, using you know flashlights to get through the office. Well, I'm really anxious to find out what happened on Monday because it sounds like things really hit the fan. They did. The press had by now heard that T.I. had been arrested and that he'd been arrested for machine guns and silencers. We had prepared a statement for the press that was issued to them Monday morning. And so Monday morning, I think it was either nine or 10 o'clock was going to be his initial appearance. And I've got my agents there. I've got one of the AUSAs that was assigned to work with me on the case. It was going to be a big case. So two of us were going to work on it, an assistant named Todd Alley. And so Todd and I are in the elevator. We've got uh, the agents, two or three ATF agents with us. We go up to the courtroom, which is in the same building as the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Atlanta. And I step out of the elevator and the hallways are jammed with people, just jammed. With people. How did they get in there? Uh, well, they all cleared security and got into the court. It's a public building. Anyone who wants to come oh. in the building is allowed to come in as long as they clear security, go through a metal detector, and have a photo ID. And so the hallways were jammed. And I saw what to me was the most remarkable thing of any case I've ever seen. And that is people were wearing T-shirts that said, free T.I. Okay. Like, how did they get those printed between Saturday night and Monday morning? I guess they're motivated. I guess so. But it was so bizarre. So we walk into the courtroom, which is normally, you know, basically a pretty sleepy place. It isn't as it's depicted on TV where courtrooms are always packed. I mean, they're rarely packed. There are rarely more than two or three people, especially for something like a first appearance, which is when the judge is just going to inform the defendant of the charges against him. And we're going to talk about bond. I mean, that's all it is. It's a really simple process. But the hallways were packed. The courtroom was completely full. And people were giving me and my colleagues death stares as we walked into the courtroom. Well, T.I. was a beloved figure. I know. And it sounds like you guys are not. No, we definitely were not. So we go in there, we sit down and it's, you know, we, we go through the process of uh, where the defendant is going to ask for bond. And he's already assembled a dream team of Atlanta lawyers, the most notorious, most famous and really, really best team of lawyers anybody could put together in Atlanta. And so they want T.I. to get out on bond. And we are making an argument for why he should stay in jail, because he represents a danger to the community with all this access to guns and he's a flight risk. And so the bottom line is the judge decided that he should stay in jail because he was a danger to the community and a flight risk. And I'm sure that didn't go over very well with the press and the people that were there to support T.I. 
It didn't. In fact, the death stares that we got going in were far more intense going out. The U.S. Marshals, uh, they're very good at their job when it comes to courthouse security and finding fugitives and other things like that. But specifically, they escorted Todd and I out of the courtroom. Nothing happened, but I think the marshals were concerned that uh, something would happen to us. And so I felt very safe as I was escorted out of the court uh, room and back to my office. Well, Francie, knowing you, I'm sure you didn't need any U.S. Marshals. Uh, you're pretty tough yourself, and they didn't know who they were messing with. Well, I was probably taller than along on four-inch heels, and so I wouldn't have been able to run to get away anyway. So I probably needed <laughs> help. <laughs> All right, so T.I. is now arrested and arraigned, and what happens in the case? I mean... Does he go to trial? Is this something where he pleads guilty because it's overwhelming evidence? What goes on? Well, you know, I really wanted to try this case, Jim. I desperately wanted to go to trial. But it was one of those cases where the bosses felt that the risk of his getting an acquittal because of his popularity, because of his notoriety, because of his charisma. And let me just say, his charisma was some of the most remarkable qualities I have ever experienced when we sat really? down when we sat down across from him and his team of lawyers we it was day after day after day we were negotiating because he wanted to plead guilty his lawyers knew that we had him dead to rights so he didn't want to go to trial because he knew we could prove he was guilty but he was looking for a probation sentence he didn't want to go to jail he was looking at probably 8 years of time so we were negotiating back and forth across the conference table from his team of lawyers I was stunned at his charisma. He has this incredible ability when you're talking to him and he's talking to you to do what most people don't do, to maintain complete eye contact. He barely blinks. He looks you right in the face. It makes you feel like he is really paying attention to every syllable and nuance his charisma, I was really shocked. And, and I understand why my bosses after that first meeting were, were afraid that we could not win, even with all the evidence, because he was so likable and charismatic. Really? Because, you know, when you look at him, he looks pretty tough. You know, he does, but he's got these beautiful eyes. I hate saying that about an offender, but he's got these gorgeous eyes. He's really, he's not a big man, so he's not at all menacing. I mean, he's probably, I don't know, five, eight or five, nine. Um, mm -hmm. and he's very slender. So he isn't a menacing person. He's, you know, very good looking. And I think it's just his affability. He just has charisma. That's really the best way I can describe it. And it was pretty remarkable. I've sat across the table from, you know, hundreds of offenders, drug offenders, gun offenders, child offenders, and they are all nothing when compared so his charisma was remarkable, and my bosses were really concerned that we couldn't win. I, of course, didn't agree with that. Uh, I thought I could win. I mean, I, of course, I always thought I could win. And we. Yeah, but it's so hard, Francie, to convict a celebrity. It's so hard. I, I mean, I've seen that time and time and time again. And I think that's what they thought. And so while we argued about it in the back rooms of the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I got um, kind of upset a couple of times, as you might imagine, about having to take a guilty plea. But in the end, that's what the bosses decided. And when your bosses decide something, you pretty much have to go along with it. And so 
What did he plead to? Well, he admitted his guilt. He admitted to everything that was part of our agreement was that he admit complete guilt and that he was guilty of everything that we said he was guilty of, but he was going to get a remarkable sentence of a very high fine. He spent millions of dollars on a fine and we required a thousand hours of community service. And specifically, we required that part of his community service was that he go out into the underprivileged communities of Atlanta, specifically to schools, and talk to kids about staying on the right path. And that's what the bosses thought was the best use of this conviction, was not him going to jail, but him telling other kids who might be headed for trouble why it was not the best path. You know, Francie, I, you know, I sort of understand how he could have negotiated that and I'm sure you feel the same way, but unfortunately, it just shows if you have money and lots of lawyers and lots of popularity, justice is different for you. I mean, if he was just the average guy, he'd be in jail for a very long time. And when he was in jail, he'd probably get into further trouble and stay in jail longer because it's difficult being in jail. And, you know, especially for somebody who isn't a big guy and, you know, you have to fight to establish your credibility and your manhood, basically. And if that happens, you can get your sentence extended further and further and further. And so it just really points out the disparity in sentencing and results and justice for people who are wealthy. They can pay millions of dollars into fines and do community service. And regular people have to do the time. Well, that's right. And that's why I opposed it, Jim, because to me, I didn't care who he was or what he could do. Anyone else in his position was looking at eight years or so in prison. And I thought he should go to prison just like anyone else. But he didn't. I also thought that he would reoffend. I did not think he could manage to do all his community service and spend his probationary period crime free. And I ended up being right. He had to go back to jail just a year or so later for violating his probation because he was found in possession of marijuana. Mm. Okay, well, at least he got some jail time out of it. He did. Well, Francie, sounds like your weekend of work was both exhilarating and frustrating. So tell us, was this a best case or a worst case? It was a little bit of both, really. Best because it was, like you said, it was in the maelstrom, you know, in the eye of the storm uh, for a few days. The media, the people, the free TI t-shirts were all remarkable and unique. But it was also a worse because I did not feel that justice was done. I thought TI should go to jail. I still think he should have gone to jail. And to my shock and dismay, I was at the movie theater not too long ago watching the sequel to uh, Ant-Man, And there is T.I. on the movie screen succeeding as an actor, being paid, enjoying his life when he should only just now have been getting out of prison. Mm, Wow. Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, is justice, not for all. Anyway, thank you, Francie, for sharing with us this very interesting case and one that obviously brought up a lot of emotion and kind of really demonstrates how frustrating it can be to be on the side of justice. And sometimes we get it and sometimes we don't. Very true, Jim. All right. Well, for now, 
We want to thank you for listening and hope your holiday season is going well. Till next time, signing off for Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Knowledge is power, and when we know the facts about sexual abuse, we can better protect kids. Darkness to Light has already trained more than 1.4 million adults to keep children safe from sexual abuse. I'm one of those 1.4 million, Jim. Using their Stewards of Children Prevention Training, they give you and gave me the facts, tools, and tips I needed to help keep the kids I love safe, and you can do the same with their Stewards of Children Prevention Training. Get trained today to prevent, recognize, and react responsibly to child abuse in your community. Learn more about Darkness to Light and child sexual abuse prevention at www.d2l.org. That's D, the numeral 2, L.org.